Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. We have a lot to do today. We have Colonel Pamela Stevenson as our guest on the show this week. She is uh, the current Kentucky State Rep for District 43, which stretches from West Louisville kind of towards downtown. Um, It's a different district now that she's running in uh, than the one she's represented in in the last term. Uh, But but she's running really hard for it. She's got an opponent. Her opponent is somebody we talked to last week. Um, But, you know, uh, we wanted to get her perspective on some stuff. And uh, we we did a good, uh, I felt like it was a really good interview. Uh, We asked her some easy questions and some tough questions and she answered them all and i felt like uh she she really acquitted herself really well in that interview jasmine how'd you how'd you think it went i thought it went well i really like this season um where we get to interview primary candidates it's like in the in the general you know we usually know that we're supporting the democratic candidate um but i like these primary interviews that we're doing, you really get to hear some different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I do think that the the difference in the candidates is is, is strong. I think both of them uh, uh, would would say that <laughs> very mm-hmm. very forwardly. And uh, yeah, I mean it, it's up to the voters. And if you're a voter in that district, I really encourage you to listen listen to this interview. Uh, we are also going to have Bruce Maples on the show to talk about his legislative scorecard on Forward Kentucky. Uh, we'll probably put that in right after the introduction. We haven't done the interview yet, but we will shortly. So um, we'll probably you'll probably hear this once we're done doing this before we start the regular show. Um, so that's going to be a good interview as well. But we have lots of stuff to talk about. Jasmine's going to talk to us about some vetoes um, and, and a court case around uh, abortion that has happened happened in the fallout of the legislative session. I'm going to talk to us about uh, fundraising data that's now available. The the KREF deadline for 30 30 days prior to the primary election. All of those reports were due. Uh, Some very interesting stuff in there. And then um, we do have some quick hits to get to. So let's get to our interview with Bruce Maples. All right. Joining us now is Bruce Maples, who is the owner and operator of Forward Kentucky, which is a a website and community dedicated to progressive politics here in Kentucky. He's been on the show lots of times. We're part of the Forward Kentucky Network, as we say on every show. Um, And we're always glad to invite Bruce in. We wanted him to talk to us today about his legislative scorecard and about a, a new section on his website. So, Bruce, welcome back to My Old Kentucky Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So so we wanted to talk to you a little bit about the legislative scorecards that you came out with, which was kind of a way to to judge, you know, how liberal or conservative uh, the Republicans and, and Democrats that make up our legislature are. So why don't you tell us a little bit, just a high level, um, what it is, what it looks like, and, and some of the insights that you've had uh, during the 2022 session. One feature that we have that our members participate in or can can participate in is the bill tracker which tracks every bill in the legislature, literally every bill. Uh, It's provided to us, it's a service by uh, a a company called LegisScan. And along with it comes the opportunity to build a scorecard. So you build the scorecard and then it provides the user interface and and does the the math and so on and so forth. So we've done the legislator scorecard for the past three or four years. And so it was fairly simple to set back up again. Basically, it works like this. There are two measures that legislators are scored on. One is a percentage, which is how many times did they vote the way we wanted them to vote for a bill that we're for and against a bill that we're against. So obviously, the highest 
number somebody could get would be 100%. They voted our way every time. Uh, the second thing is a point total. And I need to explain that because it's a little more complicated. Basically, if we support a bill, it's worth three points. If we strongly support a bill, it's worth five points. And the other way, if we oppose it. So if somebody votes the way we want, if we support it and they vote for it, then they get three points. If we strongly support it and they vote for it, they get five points. If we uh, support it and they vote against it, they get a negative three points. And if we strongly support it and they vote against it, they get a negative five points. So that's the point thing. But there's one more piece to it, which is uh, you also get a point plus or minus for sponsoring bills. So if you sponsor a bill we like, you get a point. If you sponsor a bill we don't like, you get minus a point. So even though somebody might vote with us 100% of the time, they might not have the most points because the bills uh, the, that they sponsored weren't you know, ones that we cared about or whatever the case may be. So that's basically how it works. If you go to the website, normally the legislator scorecard is only for members, but I have made it open to the public as of this week. So anybody listening to your podcast can go to forwardky.com and right on the menu is ledge, ledge scorecard, the Molly Ivins term for legislature. So they can click on that. And there's all sorts of notes explaining how to use it and so on and so forth. Uh, when you go in the first time, it's sorted by vote percentage. So you can see who voted with us or against us the most. Obviously, the whole thing is dependent on which bills you choose to score. You know, I didn't score all thousand bills. I didn't even score all the bills that passed. And in fact, I took out some bills that were originally in the scorecard because they never even made it to a committee. And I just thought that's just cluttering this thing. So right now it's got, I think, about 60 bills that we scored on. Uh, and, you know, everything from HB1 and all the as all the priority bills to some other bills to some bills that frankly probably didn't have much of a chance, but they did get a vote. We, I pretty well kept it to bills that got votes. Yeah. So with all of that uh, shaking out, uh, did you see, did anything pop up in terms of anybody's score that surprised you or anything that any insights in uh, that, that, you know, that you, you came away with when you looked at the output? Well, there's a couple of things. So if you, uh, you know, you can filter it and so on and so forth. You would expect that since we're a progressive organization, that most of the people who voted with us would be Democrats. And you would also expect that most of the people who voted against us would be Republicans. Uh, you can sort it by, you know, vote index. And we had a number of people who voted with us almost 100%. Uh, what was interesting was, in the in years past, there have been there has been some overlap. The two years before this and one year before this, uh, there were some conservative Democrats who scored lower than some moderate Republicans. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of overlap between the two parties. This year, none, no overlap whatsoever. In fact, as I look at the gap, let's see. So the vote index for the Democrats stops at 72%, which is Ashley Lafferty voted with us 72%. 
And then the the highest scoring Republican was Killian Timoney at 55%. And that gap is much bigger than it's been in years past. Now, granted, it could be the the bills I chose, obviously, but that's still striking to me. Yeah, the big sort, I think is what they call that in the political science literature. So, <laughs> yeah, we have certainly sorted ourselves along ideological lines here in Kentucky, just like we have in the rest of the country. So, you know, you also have an elections piece of your website that that's pretty new. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? We have a new feature called Election Central, and it's a collection of information pages. Let me just see if I can run through it real quickly. So we've got all the communications pieces, mailing address, website, all the social media links, and email. We've got the financing, so their campaign finance reports, both last report and total. Uh, We're going to have listing of endorsements. We're going to have bios of the candidates and any other notes we can come up with. Uh, It's sort of a ballotpedia for Kentucky. Uh, We are not putting effort into unopposed races. So I'm not going to take the time to build a race page for somebody who's going to win anyway. Uh, The first launch will be this week, and it will be the big long list and the race pages for the ones who have an active primary. Uh, We will continue building it out through May and, of course, all the way up until the election. It will get more valuable as the year goes along. Sure, yeah, that, that sounds really valuable. It sounds like a, a something I would def, definitely make use of. Uh, we're doing our best to interview a lot of po- folks in competitive primaries, uh, and, and so this would be a great resource for anybody else who's making a decision uh, to, to definitely go and check out. Um, so, yeah, all, awesome. Um, I want to, before we leave the scorecard, I want to report on a couple of things. Yeah, go ahead. Uh If you sort by total score, uh, the top four are women. Uh, Josie Raymond, Tina Bojanowski, Lisa Wilner, and Rachel Roberts, which I don't think necessarily surprises anybody. You got out of Louisville. I wondered if you would. Rachel Roberts did uh, get in the top four Mm -hmm. there. Yeah, yeah, and right right under there is Buddy Wheatley and Derek Graham and Joni Jenkins. So uh, the lowest score... Like by far, John Chickle. Yes. Yeah. I <laughs> Good I job, mean, Robert. <laughs> I mean, he's not even close. You know, um, it's amazing to me that somebody can be that far away from our positions. But man, he is, and I think he's held that record like for three years in a row. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Every every way I've thought of to cut cut this up uh, shows John Schickel as the most conservative person in the Kentucky legislature. So, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Any um, other insights? Um, you can. There are there's a lot of features on it. I would urge everybody to go look at it. You can see what legislation we chose and how we scored the bills. And if you look at the vote index, it's a really nice bar graph of all of the legislators and the gap I was talking about is so obvious. You can also filter by chamber so you can look at just the House or just the Senate. And the most depressing thing on the site is the map. So there's a map of the House districts and a map of the Senate districts color-goaded by their representative score. And it's this sea 
of conservatism with pockets of progressivism. You got to you got to uh, make it so it's more of the people, the Louisville districts, because they have so much more population, they should be bigger. Yes. So <laughs> you can do it that way. But what's interesting is that in the House, there are two districts in the Southeast that are more progressive. One of those, I'm sure, is Angie Hatton. Um, but there's two of them there. There's uh, a couple of other districts that are not in the main central cities. And then if you look at the Senate map, um, there's, uh, again, there's some districts that are not in the big cities that are more progressive than the rest of the state. So, you know, even though it's depressing to look at, there is perhaps hope that some of those districts can start moving the other direction. We'll see. Um, and I'm sure we'll be tracking it the whole way. Um, all right. Well, Bruce Maples, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, definitely everybody go to check out forwardky.com and, uh, yeah. And, and check out the legislative scorecard, which is available for everybody to use. So appreciate yep. you coming on Bruce. Okay. Jasmine, tell us about the vetoes that have happened. All right. So last week, Robert, you talked a little bit about Senate bill 163, which allows some people with felony convictions to receive their key scholarships. The House pushed to have all people with felonies um, be able to receive the scholarship, but the Senate would not budge on excluding people convicted of violent offenses, um, some drug trafficking offenses, and crimes against children. Um, The Kentucky Center for Economic Policy and the ACLU called on Andy Bashir to veto this bill, um, and we weren't really sure exactly what was going on. I said that I would not veto it, um, but it turns out that the language of the bill, um, it it may be a drafting error, it sounds like. So the language of the bill actually excludes violent offenders and people convicted of crimes against children from any scholarship in several other sections of the Kentucky Revised Statute. So while it opens up that keys money to some people with felony records, it actually takes other available scholarships away from others that were available before, like work ready scholarships. Um, and Robert, you said you didn't read the bill this way. Yeah, it's not that I necessarily didn't read it this way. It's that I saw what the bill was doing and I didn't like double check what that chapter of care. It's like, um, you know, the way that it's written is to kind of say like um, anybody who's can, or, you know, th- anybody who's convicted of these kind of felonies are not eligible for mm-hmm. scholarships under this chapter. And I was like, oh, I guess that's keys money, but it's not. And that's what got caught. Yeah, by, there but- are. Th- there's like a whole section of different types of state scholarships um, and it would exclude people with these certain kinds of felonies from any of them. Um, And so the governor did veto the bill and said that he hopes that error error will be rectified in the next section. So that is why the ACLU and KSEP um, supported the veto. And now I understand because it's actually pretty harmful to some people. The governor also vetoed House Bill 344, which is a bill that would have given the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources the authority to allow third-party entities to sell licenses and permits without following a procurement process under state law and without competitive bidding. Bashir expressed concern about the unchecked authority that the department would have without oversight of the third party. And so um, that veto will stand. 
And then the last sustained veto is the one for House Bill 690. So this was a bill that originally changed the makeup a little bit of the Judicial Council, which is um, they serve in an advisory capacity on matters related to Kentucky's court system. But that bill was amended to include that provision that allowed any licensed attorney to carry a concealed deadly weapon into courtrooms. Um, and so the governor vetoed that one and that one was allowed to stand. So um, although a lot of vetoes were overridden, there were three that were not. Yeah, I'm not shocked that the governor vetoed a bill about the Department of Fish and Wildlife. I think uh, everything involving... <laughs> That's been kind of a whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that we talked about that HB 690 for a second. I, I'm glad that that was allowed to stand. So there you go. All right, Jasmine, uh, you also wanted to talk to us about the abortions lawsuit, which originally we were like, let's all put this in one segment. But you were like, this is a big enough story that it gets its own segment. So tell us all about this lawsuit. Yeah, so we were going to just make this a quick hit, but it's it's a little bit complicated. So last week we talked about the lawsuit over the omnibus abortion bill, which is House Bill 3. It creates a lot of new regulations and forms um, that the state will have to make plans for. Basically, they have to have a new process in place. Um, and then it also includes a 15-week total ban on abortions because it changes um, the point of viability. So we were wondering last week when we would have a ruling on a motion for a temporary injunction because the EMW clinic in Louisville actually had to halt any abortions um, because they did not believe that they could comply with the bill. So last week, Judge Rebecca Grady Jennings, who is a federal district court judge in the Western District for Kentucky, she granted a temporary injunction blocking House Bill 3 from going into effect. The attorney general argued that providers would not be forced to comply with the new forms and regulations because they hadn't yet been implemented. Um, but the law also like, contains penalties for noncompliance. And the court found that there wasn't any exemption for noncompliance while the state develops those regulations. And the bill makes clear that the entire law became effective on April 13th. And so because there was no way for any provider or the state to be even in compliance with the bill, uh, the temporary injunction should be granted. We also know, um, we also now know that the 15-week ban provision has been blocked as well. So the procedural history is what's a little bit complicated. The ACLU requested the temporary injunction against House Bill 3's regulations and the 15-week ban, and they did that in a different case. They asked to add that challenge to an existing lawsuit over the six-week abortion ban that was passed not this session, which was the heartbeat bill. That case is in front of Judge David Hale. Planned Parenthood filed a separate challenge to House Bill 3, but they didn't substantively challenge the 15-week ban as they only provide care up to 14 weeks. That's the case in front of Judge Rebecca Grady Jennings. So there were two different cases. So it was kind of unclear from... 
Judge Grady Jennings' order whether the 15-week ban was included in her ruling since Planned Parenthood didn't substantively challenge that portion of the bill. Does that make sense? Yes. So let me see if I can explain it back to you. So um, we had a, the, the last year, I think it was, or it was either 2020 or 2019 when we had the heartbeat bill, which is a six-week span on abortion. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, Planned Parenthood... Uh, tried to add their challenge to the case. No. no. Oh, gosh. Okay. What did <laughs> I do ACL, wrong? The ACLU. Okay. So the ACLU, they requested an injunction against the 15-week ban and to add that to the case that is about the heartbeat bill. That's yes. what they tried to do. And then Planned Parenthood, who Planned Parenthood and ACLU, different organizations, but often work together on uh, abortion stuff or at least uh, uh, make cases about the same bill. So Planned Parenthood did something different. They filed a separate challenge, but they did not substantively uh, challenge the 15-week ban because Planned Parenthood only d- doesn't provide care as long as, I guess, the ACLU who is suing on behalf the of EMW. The EMW clinic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Planned Parenthood case is the one that was before uh, Rebecca Grading Jennings, who is in the Western District of Kentucky, who granted the temporary injunction about the bill for the paperwork thing. So, right. so that's and it, why, and it just and it just wasn't clear from her order whether the provision in the bill about the fifteen week ban was part of her injunction because most of her order talked about the paperwork part of it. Gotcha. It's not really just the paperwork part of it, but that's what I, <laughs> that's what we'll call that. Right. But I gotcha. There, there are a lot of new. The cabinet has a lot of work to do to come into compliance with House Bill Three, and that work hasn't been done yet. Yes. Um, yes. And it, and it has a lot to do with new forms and and paperwork. creating new regulations. <laughs> there's yes. there's paperwork and there's also promulgated regulations that need to come out. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. So what happened next? So Judge Hale, who has the heartbeat bill case, he denied the ACLU's motion to add the challenge to the new law and and denied their motion for a temporary injunction. So on Monday, the ACLU filed a motion to intervene in the Planned Parenthood case and filed a motion asking for clarification regarding the 15-week ban. Yesterday, Judge Grady Jennings granted the motion to intervene and clarified that her order does block the entirety of the bill. So now there's an injunction against the entirety of House Bill 3 while the case is pending on the merits. All right. Well, there you go. So uh, that is complicated. It right. did so deserve its own case, <laughs> It's kind of a lesson in civil procedure so there's joinder of claims and joinder of parties they the aclu tried to do a joinder of claims and join their claim to a different case and that didn't work out so then they tried joinder of parties to join the planned parenthood's case and that was successful (laughs) yeah and in the end uh the bill is temporarily blocked so there you go yes okay and so that's why last week you were kind of like why hasn't this happened yet? And I'm like, I'm not really sure. And <laughs> this is why. All right. Uh, so from one complicated subject to an- the next, uh, the KREF reports for the last quarter were due. Um, you know, the 30 days before an election, KREF makes everybody file a report. Uh, and those came out. And nearly every candidate has filed their most recent report. 
So I wanted to start by talking about the Louisville mayor's race, which uh, that is where a lot of the money has come. So three of the top fundraisers for the upcoming election are running for mayor of Louisville. Craig Greenberg tops the list. He's raised $1.4 million. David Nicholson is close, not that close behind, but he's right below him on the list with 600000 So less than half, but he's raised $600,000. And then Bill DeRuff, um, who's running as a Republican in that race, he has raised 357000 He's the mayor of J-Town currently. So those are the three candidates with the most money. The other candidates running for mayor of Louisville have yet to outraise David James. So if you remember, David James was briefly running for mayor of Louisville, but then he dropped out and, and d- threw his support behind Craig Greenberg. So Shamika Parrish Wright is in third with 82000 Tim Finley has raised 45000 and the three other GOP candidates have raised about 20000 combined. So, you know, um, you can do a lot with that money. You can do a lot with 82000 or $45,000. You can have staff. You can have yard signs. You can do a pretty good campaign with that amount of money. You can do a lot more with $1.4 million. Yeah, that's a lot more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, 371 individuals gave the max contribution to Craig Greenberg. Most of those folks are from within Kentucky, uh, and a lot of the out-of-state max contributors do business in the city of Louisville. So uh, the people I saw that gave the max were, you know, folks associated with the Cordish Company who run Fourth Street Live, and then also Michter's Distillery. I don't really. Have you ever had Michter's? I've I've never even tasted it. It's a bourbon. It's a liquor, right? Yeah, we have a bottle of Michter's Rye that is pretty good. All right. Well, they are supporting Craig Greenberg. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there you go. I also saw that there is like a new pack to support Greenberg? Yes, absolutely. Uh, The Courier-Journal has an article detailing the fundraising of this group that's called Forward Together. That's a pack that's being backed by the Brown family, um, the Brown-Foreman family. They're a different liquor company. (laughs) Um, And they've raised $361,000 backing Craig Greenberg. Laura Lee Brown and Steve Wilson gave to this pack, which makes sense because Mr. Wilson was uh, Mr. Greenberg's partner in the 21C Hotel Project. uh, And, you know, that's kind of his in with the Brown family. Um, There are a lot of other notable folks on this list of donators, including Jim Gray, who is currently the Secretary of of Transportation and has been the mayor of Rand for Senate. You likely know Jim Gray. So one of the things to think about when you're considering the money that's been directly raised um, by these candidates is that there are also PACs out there that are doing things that are not necessarily associated with the campaigns, but just backing them directly. So um, yes, Craig Greenberg has $1.4 million to use on his own. And he also has this nearly $400,000 pack that's backing him that he doesn't have anything to do with, except for that they're supporting him. Packs always have such vague names. Forward, forward together. together. Like, what, <laughs> what does that mean? Who Who's going forward together? Uh, the Browns and Jim Gray. There you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's what's going on there. So, okay, yeah, we did want to definitely talk about about that as well. So check out that Courier-Journal article. It has a lot more names on there of the people who have given to the group, kind of what the intricate networks are that that support Craig Greenberg. Um, But, yeah, I I did also want to talk a little bit about the other candidates. So 109 individuals gave the max to David Nicholson. 100 of those are in Kentucky. Bill DeRuff had 60 max contributors. 59 out of the 60 were from Kentucky. Um, of the candidates uh, still running, Tim Finley had four max contributors, and Shamika Parrish-Wright had seven. Six are from Kentucky. 
there are a lot of notable lit folks in the contribution files, which we don't have time to get into. But I did want to actually mention that Carla Deering, who we did interview when she was running for mayor as well, she was one of Tim Finley's $2,000 donators. Uh, I also saw her yesterday uh, giving waving at Tim Finley at the uh, mayoral forum. So um, Yeah, I think that that's interesting because when she announced her candidacy, candidacy i think people thought she might be more aligned with like a fisher or a greenberg or or something like that so that's interesting to me um i think it was also pretty clear that she was running in opposition to craig greenberg um so i knew that i thought it would be highly unlikely that she would back him and you know I think, you know, then you look at the other candidates running. It didn't seem likely she was going to support David Nicholson for reasons. Um, and yeah, you know, Tim Finley is on the, the list of people who I think would be a good mayor. So that's probably how she ended up thinking about him. Uh, well, I think I think once especially, you know, once we talked, we talked to her on our show, it became clear that she was running against Greenberg. But I think when she first put out a campaign video and no one really knew who she was except that she came from this business background. Like she seemed more similar to like a, a Greg Fisher type candidate. And so I don't know if, if back then I would have known that she would have supported Tim Finley. Yeah. Yeah. I mean her and Craig Greenberg and, uh, and Greg Fisher, um, all kind of have similar backgrounds in terms of like venture funding, business people, development, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think that was kind of her idea and her campaign was to provide like a different kind of candidate besides Craig Greenberg, who might have a little bit of a different vision. Um, and yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, we have the candidates that we have, um, I do get what you're saying, that it is a little surprising that she would have ended up, um, you know, backing somebody as uh, ardently progressive as as Tim Finley, I think is what you're getting at there. Um, but yeah, not, uh, not necessarily just that at the beginning of her campaign, when no one knew anything about her, I don't think people realize she's as progressive as she is. Gotcha. Yeah, no. Yeah, that's and, and I think she's that's that bears out with her support for Tim Finley. That's for sure. Okay, let's move east slightly and talk about Lexington. A uh, couple surprises in the list there. Um, running for mayor of Lexington is David Kloiber, and he has raised more than $300,000, which is you know double the amount that, that Linda Gordon has raised. Linda Gordon has raised $165,000. However, that amount is almost entirely self-funded. He's given his campaign $275,000 in loans and $13,000 in direct donations, which um, almost adds up to $300,000. Kluber does have six max contributions to his campaign. All but one of them is from outside Kentucky. That's worth mentioning. Linda Gordon has 24 max contributors, 21 of whom are in Kentucky. Many of the bigger donors to her campaign are well-known in Lexington, including the owner of Ramsey's Diner, William T. Young Jr., and several people associated with the horse industry. So um, a lot of the heavy hitters in Lexington seem to really like Linda Gordon. Um, Kloybert, though, is, uh, you know, I don't know what he's going to do with all that money. Uh, it seems like he's going to run a pretty strong challenge, though. So we will see how that one comes out. Uh, he's clearly put some money behind his campaign. So three folks running for state representative has ra have raised more than $100,000. They include Chad All, Daniel Grossberg, and Richard Crawford. 
Three state Senate candidates have raised that much. Aaron Reed, Andrew Cooperwriter, and Julie Racky Adams, um, all of which are kind of an interesting story. So all, Chad All is running to replace Susan Westrom in Lexington. He raised the most at almost $150,000. He didn't give himself a loan either. All of that money was actually raised. 13 people gave him the max amount, including some family members, but that is a really impressive amount. That's a lot. Yeah, I've I've met Chad. Um, we were friendly when I was living in Lexington. He, I, I really am looking forward to having Chad on the show at, at some, some date in the near future. All right, Daniel Grossberg, who is running against Tom Birch, along with Neil Turpin in Louisville. Tom Birch is 90 years old. He didn't show up to that many votes this year, but is a person with a long history of really good service to his, his district there in, in Louisville. Um, Grossberg has loaned himself more than $100,000. In addition, he's had five people give him the max contribution along with the Iron Workers Union or an Iron Workers Union. So uh, another self-funded candidate who was working hard against an incumbent, a uh, little bit like David Kloiber there. Richard Crawford's money, he's a Republican, um, and he is running to replace Jerry Miller in Louisville. All of his money comes from a loan to himself. So that is also a pretty competitive primary on the Republican side, pretty crowded. Uh, that's a pretty safe Republican seat, one of the only safe Republican seats here in Louisville. I shouldn't say that. There will be a strong Democratic opponent running against Jerry Miller, um, but it is friendlier for Republicans than Democrats. We'll put it that way. Aaron Reed running for Senate to replace Paul Hornback. This is a new district. The Senate map's all kind of weird in that part of the state. Um, this new Senate district stretches from Frankfurt to Northern Kentucky, and he's raised $115,000, including 30 max donors, all of whom seem to be inside the district. So Aaron Reed seems to be having a lot of support there. So that's good for him. Andrew Cooperwriter. You know that name probably, Jasmine, right? Yes. Coffee shop guy, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. He's running in the 22nd district, which covers Jessamine and Garrett counties against the incumbent Donald Douglas. There's a little bit of an interesting wrinkle here because he raised a lot of money when he was running in a different district and then got redistricted to a different district. Mm -hmm. And um, there is like an open question as to whether you can like transfer money between races in the same year. Um, he got, in a, he, he got an, a ruling from a judge saying that he could. So he does get to keep all of that money, which is a significant amount. He's raised $114,000, eight max con contributors, a lot of contributions of very strange amounts. Uh, seems like he's, you know, doing a lot of small dollar stuff, uh, which doesn't surprise me. He seems like a pretty populist guy. Um, and his support seems to come, you know, from a pretty <laughs> like a like people um, on the ground. That, that seems to be how he's building his campaign. Uh, around folks uh i probably don't want to hang out with that often i'll put it that way <laughs> um yeah that is that is how that goes uh yeah C cooper Ryder, jasmine already mentioned him but he was the coffee shop owner who was very opposed to all covid restrictions uh he originally was running in alice forgy kerr's district okay Julie Rocky Adams gave herself about $24,000 of the $105,000 total she's raised, but she still had 25 people give the max $2,000, including some of Louisville's really heavy hitters like developer Steve Poe, Churchill Down CEO William Karkshin, Goodwood Brewery founder Ted Mitzlaff, and real estate firm NTS's CEO J.D. Nichols. Um, so a lot of the, um, I'll put it as, what, what, how, how do we call this, like moderate Republicans? I don't know if that's, I mean, that's kind of the person she is in Frankfurt. Um, but, but all of these people have given to both parties. Um, but I feel like their politics are probably closer to Julie Rackey Adams than just about anybody in the state of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Put it that way. All right. Other people who've raised a lot of money in other races. 
Neville Blakemore, who's running for Jefferson County Clerk, has raised four hundred and fifty-five thousand. I didn't uh, dig too deeply into that, but I think a lot of that is self-funded. Mike O'Connell, who's running for Jefferson County Attorney, he's raised three hundred thirty-one thousand. He has a strong network of support. I think he's running for his like third or fourth term for that race, um, so he knows what he's doing. Philip Shepard, who is running for Franklin Circuit Court, he is uh, raised two hundred fifty-five thousand dollars. We talked about him. Uh, he is he is in first place uh, for the fundraising there what a crazy i mean the running uh as a judge in frankfurt and raising a quarter million dollars that is really something uh randall weddle who's running for the mayor of london laurel has raised two hundred and forty-six thousand. uh i thought it was nuts to run in frankfurt and raise that much money running for mayor of london laurel and raising a quarter million dollars though that's that's a whole different deal um yeah, I don't. I don't even know. That's that. I mean, London. London's not a small city. Uh, but but uh, it's uh, it's not it's not Louisville either. Uh, that's and he's raised more than a lot of the folks running mm-hmm. for mayor of Louisville. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, I wanted to mention Daniel London, who's running for judge executive of Hardin County, and he's raised two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. So those are some of the people who've raised the most money in Kentucky. There you go, uh, Jasmine. Why don't you give us the quick hits? All right. I just have one quick hit. So Apple TV Plus will be telling the story of Eric C. Khan in a series called The Big Khan. I'm sure you remember Eric C. Khan. Oh, yeah. It's a great story. Great stuff. So the series and an accompanying podcast will tell the story of the largest social security fraud scheme in history and Khan's very wild and interesting life um so that'll debut on may 6th so if you have apple tv plus um that should be really interesting especially if you're from kentucky yeah i i I don't know who's behind the the show i i certainly hope that well first of all i hope they represent the people who uh you know are involved in the story in kentucky well and i hope that some folks in kentucky were involved in making it at least um but we'll see i'll watch it i got apple tv so i'll check it out for sure all right let's get to our interview with pamela stevenson colonel pamela stevenson is a member of the kentucky house for district 43 she won her first term for the seat in 2020 but she also ran for it back in 2018 and lost in a really close race um losing by just 400 votes to charles booker during the 2021 session she was one of the only Democrats to have a bill passed. Colonel Stevenson retired after serving 27 years in the U.S. Air Force as a judge advocate, which um, we call that a JAG um, attorney. So she also founded the Stevenson Law Center, a nonprofit law firm, which is dedicated to serving veterans, the elderly, and working families. So Colonel Pamela Stevenson, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. And thank you for having me. It's thrilling to be here. Yeah, we love having you on. Every time uh, you've been on, it's a, been a joy. So you always bring a little light to the show. So we appreciate you coming on. So you've now right. served in two legislative sessions. Uh, broadly speaking, what have you learned during your time in the legislature that you think will allow, allow you to serve well if voters send you back to Frankfurt next year? Well, I've learned the importance of being a servant leader. Like the greatest job I have uh, now is serving the people in the 43rd district and making sure that this district thrives. The number of people that I help when I'm not in Frankfurt, like a lady was losing her house and she thought, well, let me call my state rep and see how she can help me not lose my house. Uh, And so many different people who 
felt comfortable enough to say, I don't know if you can help, but I need help. And then being able to work my network, whether it's the local, the block, or the regional, to get people what they need. All they want is a fighting chance to live their life. So your district has actually changed substantially to redistricting. And so this time around, you're you're meeting lots of new voters. So tell us how your campaign is going and, and how you're introducing yourself. Well, my campaign is going great. And I introduced myself with a smile. Hey, I'm your state <laughs> rep. <laughs> now, I know I don't look like the last one, but because of the redistricting, I now have the privilege of serving you. What can I do for you? And this one lady, oh, she just tore my heart up. She says, oh, I'm so glad she was like 80 years old. And she said, I'm so glad to meet you. Is there anything you can do about Medicaid? And I said, well, tell me what's going on. She says, I'm just not well and I need help with my with my health care. So we gave her some resources. And I because I said, look, if I could fix Medicaid, I would. But what can we do to get you comfort now? And so it's been like a listening tour, talking to people in their yards, talking to people and their dogs, talking to people about what matters to them as a way of introducing myself and letting them know that they have my ear. And at the same time, we passed out uh, the contact information from me. Yeah. So uh, in the last session, uh, 2021, you were a supporter of the the West End TIF that was in mean, the, the story behind this is long and I want you to tell it to us. But, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, there were a lot of proposals that were made made in the wake of 2020 and kind of the one that the Republicans were OK with was this was this TIF idea. You know, talk to us a little bit about why you decided to support that bill and how you've responded to the critics of the project who've raised their voices over the past year. Well, it is uh, West Louisville. If it were a city in Kentucky, it would be the fourth largest city based on population. And since I've been back, I've gone before I even got into politics. I went door to door to door talking to people about what they needed, what they wanted and how the organization I was working for could support them. And two of the things that always came up quite consistently. Why are people always doing things to West Louisville? And why don't we have a say? Why don't they give us the money and let us decide what we need? So last uh, year, when, you know, for a long time, Black folk been saying the police officers are harming us when they stop us. And the rest of the world didn't necessarily believe that. So when they saw George Floyd being killed so casually, in front of their eyes that they believed. And all across this world, people were saying Black Lives Matter and people were looking for uh, a way to support the cause. People were calling all the Black organizations saying, I'm gonna give you money. And no different with the legislature. They were looking for the best way to empower West Lowell. And when they asked, I looked at the program, I said, I looked at the legislation. I said, number one, you've gotta make sure that every uh, neighborhood in West Louisville has a say. This board must be black led, consisting of the neighborhood, and they must have money. You do that and give them total control and let them decide what they want and how they're going to have economic improvements in their neighborhoods. So I signed on because it was an opportunity for my community to say, uh, it's like in Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, I say who, I say how, I say when. 
and we get to say how, who, and when with seed money. And I mean, it makes it makes sense. Certainly, you know, there has been an opposition that has popped up. And one of the things I have noticed is that you've reached out and held a lot of listening sessions uh, around this topic. Um, and I would love to hear your insights into how those have gone, um, what what you've learned and, and kind of uh, what your perspective is about kind of the state of this right now. Uh, when we got the legislation, when it passed, and the city of Louisville said they would put in $10 million and the state said they would put in $10 million. And then we had a lot of non, uh, uh, a lot of outside private organizations that they would put in money. We decided now we must educate, get people ready to lead this board. So starting in May of 2021, all the way through December of 2021, we had listenings on Zoom because of COVID on Thursday nights and Saturday morning. Everyone was welcome and we invited uh, a wide range of organizations and people. And we filled it questions and we answered questions and we uh, kept a um, log of questions that we couldn't answer because we're not the board and we're not the organization, but we didn't want there to be a gap between the enactment of the legislation and any action being taken. So the questions started out uh, when we started in May, it's like, what is this? How does it impact me? And by the time we completed in June, the questions were more like, how can I participate? Uh, what are we going to do to make sure that I can keep my home? How can I help the problem, uh, add to the solution? Now, sometimes there's some misinformation that's been given out about what's going on. So I'll tell you the basics. The basics are if you own a home in Louisville in January of 2021, then your any increase in taxes because the value of your house went up will be rebated for 20 years. So your rate will stay the same for 20 years, giving you the time to build a legacy for your the next generation and figuring out what you're going to do when the 20 years is up. Are you going to ask for another 10 years from the legislature? Or are you going to have found a way to pay the taxes? The valuation of, uh, let's see, the city's valuation uh, team looked at some examples. And for example, a $40,000 home might increase, let's say $60,000. And they did the, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, corresponding tax increase to see how much of a burden that would be. And we came to find out that it is workable, it is doable. And when people begin to understand that if I want to have a vibrant, thriving neighborhood that has uh, services for me and the value of my house goes up, then there might be an uh, increase in your taxes. Now, I also tell them if the legislation had never happened if we never passed this. What was happening in the space was people were coming in, buying up houses, renting out houses, and gent the gentrification was going to happen because we're in a capitalistic system where when prices go down, people with money swoop in. That was going to happen no matter what anybody did. What we said is how can we make sure that people that live here now get to keep their homes and buy homes? How can we make sure that people that are renting uh, get some form of affordable housing? 
And so one of the things that we did, for example, last session, we put in a bill uh, to fight for a renter's credit to make sure that they have affordable housing. And there are also a lot of other best practices that we're looking at around the country about what to do for affordable housing. It's a crisis across America. But the good news is if we had done nothing, 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 things were going to happen to people in my district. And now we have a mechanism to protect them so that they can get the legacy built that they want to build. You know, as you're mentioning kind of earlier, you know, you were talking, you you were in the room having discussions, doing the negotiation with the Republicans. And one of the things that I've always really admired about you is your ability to kind of talk to Republicans and have them listen to you, at least more than a lot of the other folks up there. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you, you've talked about, you know, uh, how those discussions kind of went. Um, and, and, you know, it is the reality that you know, there's nothing really you can do, nothing really that the Democrats can do to to change their mind. If they want to do something, they can do it, no matter what. And they they can come in and and write any law about West Louisville that they want to. And the only thing really stopping them is is whatever your relationship is with them. Um, and, and you know, you you've had to ne- negotiate that, and and you've had to to deal with a lot of the fallout that's come uh, since then. And looking back on it, with all the hindsight that you have now, uh, is there anything that you would have changed to your approach, or or uh, you know, during the negotiations or or after? Well, you have to strike while the iron is hot. If somebody weighs $30 million in front of your face and giving you full authority to, to use that money, I say get on board. Get on the board. Uh, be on the advisory council. Do whatever you have to do to be a part of the solution and make sure that this community thrives. Now, I will tell you, I don't think, given the fact that they did charter schools, they cut welfare benefits, they cut food stamps this session, that they would say, here's $30 million. It would not happen in this environment. And it happened last year because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And we had to strike while the iron was hot so that the people in this community could have something to, to build their community and build their personal wealth with. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about striking while the iron's hot because i also don't think we would have a bill like senate bill for the no-knock bill if if we hadn't gotten that through in 2021 um but the tiff is is a complicated issue so we appreciate um your perspective on it something else we have to ask you about though one of our big stories this week is about the latest kref reports the finance reports and we noticed that yours is missing for the most recent period is that something that we'll see soon oh thank you for asking that question i'm the candidate and i'm responsible for my campaign and the report was not filed on time there was a mistake made and the um my i have two people working full time for two days with kref to get the report in and it should be in tomorrow we had to correct something all right i appreciate that yeah, you know we had to ask it, and uh... oh, that's fine. I got nothing to hide. You want to know how much money I got? I'll tell you. I didn't raise a lot of money, but it's a little bit over twenty thousand dollars, which is not a lot for the type of campaign we're running and the amount of money we spent. Mm-hmm. So, thank you for asking the question and doing your job. Mm-hmm. Well, well, one of the things you've done in the legislature is that you've certainly been a champion for veterans, uh, and, and you know, you you managed to get a bill passed. Uh, to support veterans in, in your first session in the legislature. So are there any other proposed bills about veterans that you hope to move through the process in the future sessions uh, as we, as we move along here? 
Absolutely. We gotta, we've got to take advantage of what we have in Kentucky to get Kentucky from the bottom of the list to the top of the list. And we have two military bases here. Now, what can we do to make sure that those hundreds of people that go through those bases say, why don't I just stay in Kentucky? And one of the things we can do is make, for example, we had a bill that didn't move this session, but it's to make the benefits of um veteran benefits for education applicable for the veterans family also. And we have lots of plan. I work very closely with the, the, the commissioner, Whitney Allen, to see how can we serve veterans and let them know that Kentucky is the place they want to be. And even if they say, okay, I'm going to go back home to mama, we can make sure that their experience in Kentucky is very powerful. So whether they are in California of Boston, they're saying great things about the state of Kentucky. Very good, yeah, and and you know, you know, given your ability to to negotiate really well with the people that are running the show up there, I'm I'm sure we'll see some of these things moving soon once you get your chance to put those forward in Frankfurt. So, um, you know, I, I like to talk to the Democrats in the legislature quite a bit about the, the positive agenda that they put forward, the things that they uh, that the Democrats have uh, pushed for um, to try to get past uh, their vision for Kentucky. And, and, you know, this session, I think the main issues were kind of sports gambling, marijuana legalization and criminal justice reform. So from your perspective, as one member uh, in, a, in a small caucus, do you think that those are, are the right topics to focus on? Um, do you think that we're going to see any movement on these topics in the in the future sessions and and what what part do you have to play in the midst of all those issues well i i think what i would like to be focusing focus on is that working families in kentucky are thriving now some of those bills do that by giving people jobs like the gambling bill um but some of the more destructive bills that we passed this session hurt working families. We cut all types of benefits. And, and we also cut the state of emergency by 22 days. The Republicans set it for April and then they cut it by 22 days and it cost $50 million in food stamp benefits. And there was no reason to do that. It was already set in stone. And when we brought it to their attention that people would be hurt, it made no difference. They still pass that rule. And I want to see us do more. Listen to the constituents that travel to Frankfurt saying, this is how this bill hurts me or helps me. And then do that. Do the will of the people and not the will of the legislature. Yeah. Um, and that is something I did want to ask you about, um, you know, in, in terms of the opposition that, that you've been able to provide on a lot of the bad bills. You mentioned them uh not just social services and food stamps, but also abortion rights, cuts to revenue in general. Uh, you know, uh, we've got a lot of revenue now, but, w you know, the, the cuts to taxes that we made um, are probably going to hurt whenever the economy isn't looking so good. Um, you know, it's a reality that there's not enough Democrats in the legislature to, to really prevent the Republicans from doing whatever they want. We already made that point. Um, but, you know, you've been able to work with Republicans on other issues. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, do you find it useful um, to appeal? To, to Republicans' better nature to kind of moderate some of these bills. Do you think that that's something possible? Uh, and and is, is that something that you're working to do while you're in Frankfurt? 
Absolutely. We, we always have to work to keep the lines of communication open. When I was in the Middle East and didn't speak the language, when I was in Bosnia and didn't speak the language, and when I was in uh, Italy and didn't speak the language, I had to negotiate on behalf of America. And I didn't speak the language. I had an interpreter. But what I discovered was people want the same things. They want their life to matter. They want to take care of their families. They want their country and community to thrive. So I take those negotiating skills to the legislator, legislators, and I talk to the Republicans like the people they are. They have families, they have wants, they have wishes, and I want to stay focused on the issue, not on opinions. I really don't care what your opinion is about certain things, as long as I can resolve this issue about that's right in front of us. And, and that's the way I tend to handle it, one issue at a time. It's uh, that negotiating skills have been very useful for me in the making policy at a high level has been very, very useful uh, in the General Assembly. We've talked to you about this a little bit before, but you're one of just three black women currently serving in the legislature. Given your identity as a black woman who lives in West Louisville and who served in the armed forces, you, you really bring a lot of unique experiences to Frankfurt. And so you, You've been through another session now since we last talked to you. How have you been able to use your perspective to shape legislation in Frankfurt? Well, I think um, the only word you left out is three beautiful black women. Uh, and <laughs> very smart. I'm very happy with my colleagues. They are very smart. And the, the unique experiences that we bring is a listening for what matters to people. If you listen to uh, Rep. Heron or Rep. Scott, it's always in uh, the, the vein of what can I do for people? Mm -hmm. How can I help people? So, for example, the um, we knew I knew immediately that that tax bill that was passed by the legislatures uh, were was bad, and not only is it bad for poor people when you go to a flat rate tax, meaning a consumption tax. Every time you buy something, if you have only a dollar, more of that dollar goes towards taxes. And we just discovered that the way the bill is currently written, we're going to lose money the first year. We won't have enough money to pay for basics. So it saddens me when we write a bill that's flawed at the beginning. And we knew that. We think for people in people's stead. So... I think the unique perspective that we bring is how does this impact the people that is designed to impact? Um, yeah, and and I think that you know your your unique experiences are really valuable, uh, and I've really been glad as you've been able to share them. Um, you know, in Frankfurt, uh, your floor speeches are some of my favorites. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, as uh, we are in the middle of a, of a very intense primary season, um, if people want to learn more about you or want to get involved in your campaign, how can they do that? Go to Stevenson, F-O-R-K-Y, Stevenson for Kentucky dot com. Um, or go find me on Facebook. We knock, we talk. You can get the message out to your friends. Last time I won, over 6000 people voted for me. Now I'm asking you to grab a friend and take them to the polls with you. We've got to take back this democracy and we can only do it if every person is engaged at a higher level than they were engaged the last time. 
I am humbly, I'm kind, I love doing the work. I've done the work. Send me back. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you guys. And thank you, Jasmine. Thank you for the work you guys, uh, what you provide and making sure people have information to take action on. We try to do that. <laughs> Jasmine, how can people find us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our show on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>